Good morning, everyone. Welcome to yet another 11th hour lecture. Um, really looking forward to today. My name is Rachel Yoder, as usual. There are handouts down here in front. I think there are some in the back. And if you haven't already, please silence your cell phones. Thank you very much. And we're going to get going. Sands Hall's recent memoir, Flunk Start, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology, which I hear is on the discount table over at Prairie Lights as we speak, and will be there even after this lecture, in case you'd like to pick one up. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. Was Thanks for that plug, Rachel. <laughs> was listed by Publishers Weekly as a top 10 book in religion and spirituality for spring 2018. She is also the author of a novel, Catching Heaven, a Random House Reader's Circle Selection, and a book of writing essays and exercises, Tools of the Writer's Craft. A graduate of the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, she holds another MFA in theater arts and is a playwright, as well as a singer, songwriter. What doesn't she do? Nothing. Sands is an associate teaching professor at, um, of English and creative writing at Franklin and Marshall College. This, believe it or not, is the 27th summer she has taught for the festival. <laughs> Today, Sands will be presenting a lecture entitled The Music of Language to the Language of Music, which focuses on transferable musical techniques to augment a writing practice. Please join me in welcoming Sands Hall. Thank you, Rachel. I, can you hear me? Yes, okay, good. Um, thank you so much. I'm so delighted so many of you have come out to hear what I have to say about this very topic very dear to my heart. I am not a poet. Uh, I am a singer-songwriter, and I've had the great pleasure in my life, because I, I kind of think of it my last lifetime, I was an actor and did, I was, had the enormous pleasure of performing a great deal of Shakespeare outdoors where when you have to ride on vowel sounds and really be con con conscious of consonants, you begin to learn a lot about how language can reflect what it's actually saying in how it's saying it. And that's the sort of thing I really want to talk about today, is the tremendous blessing that we have in English, well, in any language, but in the playing around with what the sounds of words are in order to um, to push our meaning um, into the world on a page. And these are things I think that often people hold in their heads. We do it unconsciously, or we read enough poetry, or we are fond enough of music, of singing, of songwriting, of lyrics, that we have this sort of natural um, delight. The other day I was walking to dinner with my friend Christine and Jim and Eric and some chipmunks, those darling chipmunks, went like this and you know Christine says to Jim, are you chasing chipmunks? And there's this just lovely thing in the cha-cha, you know? We take great pleasure in that. On Monday at Eric's fantastic, really useful ec uh, lecture, he talked at one point in his part three when he was talking about how politics can play heavily on us, he talked about it can be a political diatribe or political drivel. And again, that wonderful PD, PD, there was a magic in that 
parallel construction that is also very useful to us as we begin to compose our language. I think if we study these things and stay conscious of these things, little by little they just work their way into our writing. Just by, just by giving a tip of the hat to uh, them consciously, we begin to have them in our writing almost unconsciously. So I just want to encourage the awareness and delight of these aspects of language. And I want to start with a wonderful speech from the play Hamlet by um, Shakespeare, in which um, Hamlet has come to talk to a bunch of actors, and he is telling them how they should speak the speech. So right there, we're talking right away with some thing he's doing with tremendous, this is Shakespeare, the master of this stuff, really, speak the speech. He's got that SP and that E sound going at the same time, speak the speech. But then he goes on to say this, Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. Trippingly actually is defined as in a nimble or lively manner. Trippingly. But if we look at how Shakespeare is actually saying that word, it literally is using the tongue in a magical way. Trippingly on the tongue. Just say it. Trippingly on the tongue. Trippingly on the tongue. It moves from the front to the back tongue and the N in the middle. And I am very reminded of the fact when you are an actor, which I was, as I say, many lifetimes ago, um, you practice getting ready to go out on stage by saying, butta gutta butta gutta butta gutta butta gutta butta gutta. And the reason is that it goes from the front two lips to the guh in the back and the duh of the tongue against the end. So let's just all do that. And then there's the aspirate form, which is And you see that it actually purposely moves the sound in your mouth from the front to the back and the front and the back. And it's getting it trippingly on the tongue. So there's this wonderful instruction coming right away that Shakespeare is echoing exactly what he wants the actors to do with the way in which it's being said. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. Then he goes on, that wonderful little phrase that he says, nor do not saw the air thus with your hands, and you can sort of see the bad actors doing that. But he goes on to say, but use all gently, for in the very torrent, tempest, and, and I may say the whirlwind of your passion. Look at what he's doing there. Torrent, tempest, and whirlwind of your passion, right? He's got all those consonants doing so much work to reflect exactly what it is that the lines are saying. For in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion. Then he's going to go to the opposite by using more vowel sounds. You may acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. So even in the very language that he is using to the actors, he is actually demonstrating what he wants them to do. So it's a wonderful piece to study in that way of what it is that when we want to get something across, we can actually reflect it in the very words that we use. I do just love that it offends me to the soul to hear a robust, just periwig-painted fellow tear a passion to tatters the very rag to split the ears of the groundlings, just because it's so much fun to say. But you can see here, too, the groundlings were the people that didn't pay much money to see them, and they liked to cheer and be rude and throw eggs. And so he's actually, even in that language, appealing to that. So one of the things, or the things that come to me about this, and I, as I say, I'm not a poet, I'm going to say yet, because, you know, I still have you know, a decade or two to figure that out if I want to do it. Um, but I teach a lot of poetry, and I have 
monumental admiration for poets and the forms in which they write and the words they have to describe, I mean, there are words for all of us, but particularly in what we call prosody or verse forms, there are four words that I think are incredibly handy. One is alliteration, and I think we all know what that means. It's when a, a letter begins, the same letter begins a series of, um, of words so that it's very pleasing to the sound, the, the, the mouth. It's, it's speak the speech is an example of that. Um, we also have attached to alliteration, sort of a subset, is sibilance, which by its very lurid and language is so delete, but it's just S sounds. It just has to do, I was, um, I was Gertrude in a production of Hamlet, and I played opposite a Hamlet who had a major spitting problem. <laughs> and um, there is this moment when he's got me on the floor and he's shaking me because I'm sleeping with his, uh, his uncle, and he would, you know, the wonderful sibilant phrase is incestuous sheets, and it would just be globules, but, you know, it was really wonderful because it's such a great example, incestuous sheets, and we're going to be looking at a poem in a moment with the fantastic phrasing of, um, uh, where is it, uh, oh, I'll come back, I have to turn my page, I got ahead of myself, okay, um, we also have, and these are the next two that I really love and I'm talking about a lot today, is consonants. And that is um, when we use consonants, the, the, the letters, to emphasize things. And so that's very much what I was just talking about in to tear a pat, uh, excuse me, a torrent tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion. Those are consonants being used to create the sound. And um, it's easy to remember because it's not spelled, it's not, it's spelled differently, but it is the using of consonants. So that's very easy. The other one is assonance, which is the using of vowel sounds. And uh, songwriters particularly know the value of assonance because it's really hard to sing It's really easy to sing, ah. So we have a reason that songwriters and playwrights and poets and prose writers begin to learn the value of these particular forms, alliteration, sibilance, consonants, and assonance. Um, I once was sitting in a, this was my salad days when I was young in New York City. Um, and uh, I, was having, I was alone for a period of nights in a row, and um, I was a sad lass, so I was alone a lot, writing very sad songs. And I decided, I'm gonna go down to the corner bar, and instead of just sitting in a corner with my book reading dimly by some dim candle, I am actually gonna sit at the bar. First time, young lass, sitting at the bar, bellying up to the bar, there's some alliteration for you. And I'm sitting at the bar, and I'm served my, this is how long ago this was, glass of Chablis. <laughs> and I have my little, my fingers around the stem of this glass, and I've got some bangles on and a shawl on, and I look down the bar, and there's all these men with their hands circled around beer glasses, right? And I can sort of see the light glinting on their hair, the airs of their arms. It's all rather, you know, and I'm looking down and I think, we're leaning into loneliness. 
And it took me probably a year before I actually wrote the song that is called Leaning Into Loneliness. But what is pleasing about that is not only the alliteration of the leaning and the loneliness that I knew was really a nice phrase, but it was also that extra L in loneliness. So it was the leaning into loneliness is the thing that actually made it have this sort of consonance I didn't know any of that then. And as I say, we often don't know it. But then I realized that was useful just to say something myself. And I also gave a, uh, uh, I taught songwriting, a wonderful class at Franklin and Marshall with a guy that he taught the music, because I don't read music. So he taught the music part, and I, wrote the, I taught sort of the poetic elements part. And I gave them an assignment that they had to use this kind of um, consonants inside of a phrase, and then of course I, I felt I better do it myself. So I, the beginning of that song is, um, uh, it was early September, it was early November, um, on that windy street corner, so war so cold that we wore hats and gloves, as we shivered and kissed there at Venice and Mission, the fog and the wind felt just like our love. And then I had to go and see if Venice and Mission actually do intersect, <laughs> which I wasn't sure it did. So, but they did, so it was good. <coughs> so that's how we can play around with consonants and with um, assonance. That wonderful thing, a good example might be, um, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth. We have that in Hallelujah. We have that th and th that's very satisfying. It's that internal rhyme that often happens in songs that we can also play around with in our writing. Um, so that's an example. Now, the next thing on your course little uh, handout here is Gerard Manley Opkins' Pied Beauty. Um, and just as an experiment, we're going to take it nice and slow and all read it together. And I'd like you just to hear how it is in your mouth as you say, he absolutely went for it in this poem. I have a, a, a Frances Mays has a wonderful book on poetry, and she writes about this poem that she thinks it looks like he's celebrating um, what he's, because it's all about praising God and all of these things that he's about to list, but she thinks that it's actually praising words. And you can sort of get that when you read it. So let's go very slowly. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh firecoal chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. Now isn't that delicious in the mouth? Isn't it just wonderful to see how he's playing with all those k and p and z and z, that wonderful series of sibilants that's so beautiful, swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, and then he goes from dazzle to dim. It's very, very delicious in the mouth. So this is the sort of place I go to when I need a reminder of consonants and assonance because it's such a handy um, thing to look at. Um, okay, we create so much emotion with our language. The, the, the sort of brittle abandonment of consonants, and then the amazing ability we have 
the mournful evocative croon of vowels, right? Um, at the end of Ulysses, Tennyson says, <clears throat> the lights begin to twinkle from the rocks, twinkle from the rocks, the slow, the, the slow moon climbs, the deep moans round with many voices. Just this beautiful rolling on the vowel sounds of that. Shakespeare, again, understood this so beautifully. When he comes out, when Lear goes mad in the, in the, on the moor, and he comes out and he says, and this is an actor again, you get to ride these vowel sounds. But what happens as readers is we begin to recognize that. We understand that these sounds come across on the page. So it's in this case, so sorry. Oh. <laughs> Back up. <laughs> Can you hear me better? Yeah. It's a good thing that I'm shouting. Okay, thank you very much, Rachel. Do I need to back up and cover anything again? So Lear says, blow winds and crack your cheeks. So what he's doing, Shakespeare there, is giving us both the winds and, of course, that thunderous thing that also happens with lightning and thunder. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes spout. Right, just you can see that there's this huge reflection in the language of what is being written about. Later, Lear says, and thou, all shaking thunder, smite flat the thick rotundity of the world. You can see why we have to do our butagutas, right? Because you really have to go back and forth in your mouth to get these out. Once again, let's all together do these four lines. Ready? Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage blow. You cataracts and hurricanoes spout. And thou, all shaking thunder, smite flat the thick rotundity of the world. All those T's in a row, right? So you can begin to see that there is, if you're, you know, I'm making the point, that there is this real ability to reflect the emotion of what you're trying to convey on the page with the language that you use to convey it. Obviously, you're not going to do it all the time, but this does sort of sneak in sometimes um, and help us. I love the fact that that beautiful, beautiful song by Hank Williams, um, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Uh, and this is, you couldn't sing this song. It wouldn't be the same if he had a different bird, like Robin, than not Whippoorwill, and if he was saying something about, oh, listen, rather than hear, right? Hear the lonesome Whippoorwill. He sounds too blue to fly. That means he's lost the will to live. I'm so lonesome I could cry. So floating on all those sounds and also the beautiful will to live, which is up there with whippoorwill, all those uses of W's and L's as well. Hank Williams was just an astonishing songwriter and this is such a simple song, but when you look at the lyrics you realize how much craft has gone into them. Okay. This is not restricted, of course, to songwriters and poets and Shakespeare. Um, writers use it all the time. I want to jump down here to Tara Westover's Educated. This is early on in the book. And I just want to um, read it and have you notice 
where she might be playing with these ideas. And again, I don't know Miss Westover. I can't ask her, did she go back and craft some of this carefully? Did she choose the concept of, um, of what are the two I'm looking at? Sagebrush and thistles? Or did they just simply come to her? But let's see what she's doing on the page. This is a beautiful memoir. For those of you who haven't read it, I can't re recommend it more highly. I'm standing on the red railway car that sits abandoned next to the barn. The wind soars, whipping my hair across my face and pushing a chill down the open neck of my shirt. The gales are strong this close to the mountain, as if the peak itself is exhaling. Down below, the valley is peaceful, undisturbed. Meanwhile, our farm dances. The heavy conifer trees sway slowly, while the sagebrush and thistles quiver, bowing before every puff and pocket of air. Behind me, a gentle hill slopes upward and stitches itself to the mountain base. The hill is paved with wild wheat. If the conifers and sagebrush are soloists, the wheat field is a corps de ballet, each stem following all the rest in bursts of movement, a million ballerinas bending, one after another, as great gales dent their golden heads. The shape of that dent lasts only a moment and is as close as anyone gets to seeing wind. So you see how she just tucks that language in here and there, but how satisfying it is once you begin to recognize it. What are some places you noted where she actually used some alliteration? Yes? Uh, puff and pocket of air. Puff and pocket of air. I really feel that's extremely purposeful, <laughs> that there's something she's giving the puff and pocket of air to us with the very language that she uses. What's another example that particularly struck someone? Trees sway slowly, all that beautiful S words just coming together, and it lets us see that trees sway slowly is there in the very language. And again, who knows how purposeful this was or how she went back and made those decisions or if this was, came out in one burst. We just can't know, but it's there for our enjoyment, and it's there. Um, there's another aspect of um, language that I think is delightful to know and to pursue. Most of you already incorporate this, but if you don't, it's fun to do. And that is the whole concept of, um, of parallel construction. Um, I was driving, when I was driving to the airport, I passed a um, Walmart truck. Actually, I drove behind it for a while because I was pondering what was on it. It said, live, no, I have to remember what it said. It said, Oh, yeah. Save money, live better. And it was as if I'd heard chalk on chalkboard. I couldn't quite figure out why for a moment, which is why I was buying it for a while. Save money, verb, noun. Live better, verb, adjective. And it was funny how it wasn't, to me, a very successful slogan. Because, not because I think people walk around, drive around looking at slogans thinking, is it parallel construction? The way that I think that we all do in our lives because we're fascinated by such things, but just because it doesn't fall well. One of the things that happens is it's got what we call, horribly, a feminine ending. It's got, it's really horrible. Masculine endings are ones that end on a stressed syllable. And feminine endings are ones that end on an unstressed syllable. So it's got better, 
as opposed to, I, I mean, would live well be any better? I would like it better because I like live well is like firm. I'm fond of feminine endings. I'm a female, but I like the firmness of a, of a masculine ending there. So it would be save money. On, and on the other hand, well, maybe there's two feminine endings, save money, live better. You know, so you can kind of get lost in this, but it's enormous amount of funds too. But parallel construction is one of those things that I think when we begin to master it and recognize it, and it too just becomes part of what we put on the page. Long ago, I found this fantastic piece called, it's a less, an essay from Read My Lips, A Cultural History of Lipstick. And this happens to be from Harper's Bazaar, 1946. And let's just observe all the ways that this writer, who is unfortunately, I don't know who it is, um, has utilized the concept of making structures that are parallel using verbs and nouns and adjectives and in, 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 uh, in consonants to one another that is incredibly satisfying. Every age has its own courageous gestures. The knight drew his sword. The gallant threw down his glove. The senor coolly took his pinch of snuff. You see how each of those is very distinct in terms of how the language gets on the page. Well, there is a modern gesture to be added to the list, a purely feminine gesture. When a woman has lost her lover. That's another piece I just love to pull out to demonstrate how um, beautiful it is when we begin to incorporate that wonderful thing of, um, of, a, of a structure of a sentence repeating itself several times in a row that there is, <clears throat> for our readers, I think a real delicious moment of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The rhythm of the language begins to come across to us in a way that is palpable. We really get it. I could feel it in the room as I was reading it. It was like this big grin, right? It's like, this is so cool that we get to follow this language and this pattern and this rhythm in the language. So um, I'm going to read now a rather longer section from Amy Hassinger's wonderful novel, After the Dam. Um, and she is, this is even longer than what the excerpt I have here, um, probably another third or more uh, that I've, I've, um, I've excerpted here and there. But I want you to have your pen out and to take note of the places that she uses both um, alliteration, she has consonants, she has assonance, the where she's got a series of, of, um, of the consonant sounds going together or those long, longer vowels coming together in, in quick succession, where she uses parallel construction just to observe what the language does in relation to what she is writing about, which is this rain. But the rain came. It fell on the roof of Diane's little house pummeling it with its tiny rain fists, making the interior of the house sound like a drum circle. It fell on the street outside her house, in the busier country roads outside of town, slicking the surface of the summer tar, causing a sedan to skid off the road on the muddy shoulder, where its driver stayed put for a long while, waiting it out. It pooled in enormous puddles on the roads, pools which then fanned themselves into majestic arcs of spray every time they were penetrated by a set of whizzing tires. The rain fell on side streets and dirt roads and old logging trails deep in the woods, creating washouts, mud streams, rushing rivers of dirt. It fell on the dairy farms, pelting the hides of the cows who found shelter in the barn, the lucky ones, or under a tree, or else they just endured it, masticating the sweet, soaked grass. 
It fell on the gravel roads and driveways, deepening sinkholes in the subsurface soil, re-puddling patches of exposed earth, making circles of ever-expanding rings in the new and fast-growing puddles. It rained on the treetops, the forest canopy, the white pines, the cedars, the tamarack and spruce boughs, the needles shedding water as fast as it fell, the drops collecting in the crevices of the wood on the leaves of the second-story species, the spreading oaks and maples, the birches and beeches, the saplings, wetting both the strong and the doomed. It painted to darker hues the windward side of the trunks. It dampened and softened the fallen pine needles and rotting deciduous leaves that litter the forest floor, tamping them toward their inevitable verge, that intimacy with their microscopic decomposers, the earwigs and centipedes, the ants and sowbugs, and earthworms, the spiders and millipedes and beetles, those dumb agents of reincarnation whose eating and defecating would bring the fallen glory of the giants above them to meet their eventual fates as soil. It rained on and on, pocking the surface of the flowage, that great puddle, creating mad geometries of ripples, ring, crashing into rim, ring, until the circles became fragments of circumference, interrupted arcs, aborted parabolas. The flowage seethed and foamed. The ripples became waves, which became whitecaps, which knocked against each other with ever-increasing vigor, startling the bass and the trout and the crappie, who swam deeper beneath the surface. The rain came down on the muskrats and the otters, who found shelter under overhanging branches, in muddy burrows, in hidden caves. It rained on the dam, the sturdy and reliable old Ben Dam, on the causeway and the bridge, the splash walls and the gate wheel, and it rained on the rocks below the dam, where the eagle liked to fish. The river grew wild and rushy. The river liked the rain. A catfish darted. A bluegill dove. A crayfish scuttled under a rock. It rained and rained and rained, and the water accepted itself into itself and rose increment by increment. The gates rushed with water, and the penstocks echoed shootingly beneath the drumming of the rains, and the levels, mark by mark, began to rise. So what did you notice? Anybody circle a particular little phrase that went by? Excellent. So that is its own rhythm that has its satisfying to da 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 like rain. What's another phrase that somebody noted particularly stood out to them? So many S's in a row there. Yes, really fascinating. Yeah. And one more that somebody noticed that became that wonderful, I love this, um, not only startling the bass and the trout and the crappy, but also who found shelter under overhanging branches in muddy burrows and hidden caves, that sort of adjective noun. And then wonderful, a cartfish darted, a bluegill dove, a crayfish scuttled under a rock. Those great rhythmic things that are very much like music, um, where we get that sort of sense of right? We have a real sense of the rhythm that is coming at us in this piece. Um, uh, so, uh, let me just see. Oh, so one of the things I wanted to um, address also, um, and time has just gone flying by. Um, this, although I say and talk a little bit, I mean, in the title there is the, the music of language and the language of music. In terms of the language of music, it's not so much that um, I want to sort of address, though I think these are apropos, that say when we use assonance, we are kind of creating almost a legato form of music. And when we use consonants, we are often creating a kind of staccato sense in our language. And that we could even say that uh, certain 
um, pieces of writing uh, could be perhaps thought of as swing. I thought of particularly this line from, um, from The Great Gatsby, which is Daisy talking about her daughter. It's supposedly what Zelda said when her own daughter, Scotty, was born. But you can kind of hear that sensibility. All right, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful, silly fool. You can almost feel that language even there. But I'm not really wanting to talk about this kind of connection between the language of music uh, as so much as let some language of music speak to you. So what I'd like to do is play two different pieces of music for you and have you write, well, what I'd love you to do is simply have the language of the two pieces of music speak to you in whatever way they do. If you are moved then to pull out your pen and begin to write something, having that language move in you, whatever comes up, whatever comes up, I have you no know, whatever, I have no uh, prescription there at all, but if you do, to think a little bit about the idea of consonants and assonance. How can I actually create these sounds in relationship to one another in a way that reflects what it is that the music is inspiring me to write about? That's the sort of thing I'd love to play around with. So this first piece is, I, I'm just going to say, it's uh, being performed by a musician called Bill Frizzell. Thank mm -hmm. you. 